1: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April
0: Callahan. Dressless listeners, if you tuned in last week to our two-part episode on Highland Style, you are already ahead of the game. Because today we continue with our exploration of Scottish dress. And if you haven't already listened to the Highland Style episodes just yet, you might consider doing so before proceeding with today's episode, as many of the things that Dr. Wayne and I discuss in those previous episodes, well, it kind of sets up a lot of the history that in turn contextualizes today's episode, because today's episode is less about fashion history and perhaps a little bit more about fashion
1: Which is, of course, why we designate many of our discussions with contemporary makers as Fashion History Now episodes. It's always a thrill for us to chat with designers who are the creators of fashion history's futures. I mean, they're the ones who are defining fashion history right now for future generations. And undoubtedly, when it comes to the topic of contemporary kilt making, one of those individuals is today's guest, we are so pleased to welcome Howie Nicholsby to the show today. Howie is a fourth-generation kilt maker living and working in Edinburgh, where he operates his family's traditional kilt making business, Jeffrey Taylor Kiltmakers, as well as his own contemporary kilt making business, 21st Century Kilts, now in its 26th year of business.
0: And Cass, Howie is widely known as one of the best in the biz, having kilted a veritable who's who of stage and screen, from Lenny Kravitz to Russell Brand to one of my all-time favorite DJs, Danny Howells, who never thought that he would come up on Dress, but here we are. (laughs) These are just a few of the celebrities Howie has custom kilted um, that he doesn't
1: mention in our chat, so there's a few more to come. Can I just say that I love that kilted is a verb? (laughs) (laughs) We can't wait to hear your chat, April. Howie, thank you so much for joining us to talk about all things kilt.
0: Howie, a very warm welcome to Dressed.
2: Thank you, April, great to be with you.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to talk to you today um, for a number of reasons. Only one of them being that your profession is quite literally in your blood. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that you are not a third, but a fourth generation kilt maker and I am definitely going to ask you a little bit about your family's history in the profession in a bit, but before we get to that, there are probably some kind of foundational elements that we should establish for those of us who are not kilt experts, Mm -hmm. Um, and this includes myself. I am not an expert in Highland or Scottish dress history. So, the first thing that I want to ask you is, what exactly is a kilt, and what distinguishing features make a kilt a kilt?
2: Okay, so it's very tricky because people have different interpretations. I go back to its base roots. of The word kilt is Danish, Norwegian, Scandinavian, means to tuck or pleat. So the key word for me there being is pleat um, and that it's a skirt form. So, you know, the kilt can cause quite a lot of arguments. Is it a skirt? Is it not? For me, a kilt is a type of skirt that has evolved from... African nations, Scandinavian nations to evolve around the Victorian period in Britain to being the garment we know today, as opposed to the great kilt, which is the wrapper fabric, which could be very easily compared to ancient Greek and Roman togas. So Mm -hmm. the idea of the kilt being only Scottish can be... Taken away quite easily, but if we look back into historical garments, all men wore unbifurcated clothing. So everything was skirt-like. So for me, the kilts never come from one place, it's never evolved from one garment. It's a very living piece of clothing and can be interpreted in so many different ways. The fact that you have in Seattle the company utility kilts. So, you know, it's a pleated utilitarian skirt very cleverly using the word kilt, and I love them. I would wear a utility kilt if I didn't do what I do.
0: Before we transition into your work, because we're definitely, definitely going to talk lots more about that, but um, you pinpointed the origin of how you interpret a kilt to be during the Victorian period in Britain. So can we tease that out a little bit further? Who was wearing kilts at this time? (laughs)
2: Sadly, really the military aristocracy, very wealthy heads of state, you know, French, aristocracy, English aristocracy, clan chiefs, really people who could afford it by this point because it had been completely outlawed in 1745 after the Jacobite Rebellion.
0: It goes without saying that the kilt is this iconic garment in the popular imagination. It's very much an emblem of Scotland. What I'm hoping that we could do, and you would be willing to do, because the history of the kilt is fascinating, it's complex, it's Brought with conflict, you already mentioned that had been outlawed in the 18th century. Would you be willing to give us a very, very brief history of the garment so that our listeners can kind of understand how the kilt was politicized historically?
2: Ah, right. Okay. So pre-Jacobite Rebellion, the Tartans weren't quite so set as we know them. You know, you couldn't say that's definitely a Macdonald town. So it wasn't so much the identification of Tartan, although The pattern and the tartan did represent families at that time, just not as strictly as we are now. That was outlawed too. So the kilt and the tartan, the fabric the kilt was made from, but a kilt even back then could be planar or dog-tooth, tooth fabric, it was seen as the Scottish Highlanders' identity. So by taking that away, it was very much an imperial move to destroy a people's culture makes them assimilate into the imperial culture that that empire want them to be taken into. So, you know, it was very much trying to dishearten the Scots to to have any fight back. Um, I mean, this is before my time. My family arrived in Scotland in about 1880, you know, a good hundred or so years later. So this isn't so much in my blood, the tailoring and the kilt-making. Historically, I can only go along with what's in the historic books and what historians write about how far back the kilt and tartan really goes. Most people accept, that say, tartan was mostly invented around the 1822, King George IV visiting Scotland, Sir Walter Scott going a bit wild and getting all the clan chiefs in to choose these tartans. And then there's stories of uh, Polish brothers who made up a lot of the tartan history. Oh, yeah. For me now, as a fourth generation Scotsman, That history, being 2022 now, and that King George IV visit was 1822, that's a good 200 years of history, whether it's made up or not. People identify with it. um, For me, if you're not a Mackenzie or have a connection to Mackenzie, there are so many other options in the kilt world to not just wear a Mackenzie. So I think full circle to what Tartan was meant to be as an identifier there is cultural appropriation kind of being connected now to wearing someone else's tartan because, you know, they are over a couple hundred years old. Some people do take it quite seriously, especially our American and Canadian, Australian customers who find their Scottish tie and heritage to the McDonald clan or McKenzie or McLeod very, very important to them. So when they see us, sort of people in Scotland maybe, not taking the mech out of it, but maybe not taking it as seriously as they do, being from a diaspora of Scotland, whereas we live in current modern Scotland, where people aren't, you know, identifying as clan anything anymore. You know, we're all more, you know, a living, breathing society that is Scotland that we live through the music and the culture. But it's not so much every day, but we're eating haggis and shortbread and <laughs> whiskey and roaming around in tartan regalia, you know. People wear Levi's. People wear Diesel. It's, there's All Saints clothing shops in the corners here. You know, it's like any other cosmopolitan city in Europe. But anyone coming to Scotland, you'll always feel like you're in Scotland. As a, you know, like when you're in Paris, you know you're in Paris. You know, these cultural identifiers are what make us, on an anthropological level, proud of our own nationality and where we live. You know, some people, that's not enough and they want to go off travelling and see other parts of the world. For me, I love Scottish culture and history and, and the climate and the look of the historical buildings set against modern architecture. I feel as a small country, we kind of have it all in Scotland.
0: Well, I'm so glad that you brought up this point. Um, You mentioned that some people feel that the wearing of another clan's tartans or a family that you don't belong to, some people interpret that as cultural appropriation. You know, because during the 19th century, the wearing of the kilt became sort of codified in a way. And I'm curious about what are some of the rules about wearing a kilt in a quote-unquote traditional manner?
2: (sighs) Uh, as opposed to rules, I would call it the etiquette. Okay. So a Highland dress etiquette. Anyone in the world can wear a kilt, And there are plenty of generic tartans or public tartans. Like I have muted hunting stuart here, which goes beautiful with my Star Wars t-shirt as it happens. Um, (laughs) That was declared a public tartan by Lord Lyon, the Queen, now King's representative, in Scotland of all heraldry, and um, things that are historical, like the Clan Crest badge, you know how it's got the belt? You can't just take that belt and stick your family's crest in there. It's got to be properly authenticated by Heraldry Society, and then it would go to Lord Lyon to be passed But if a name like uh, Gibson that has connections to Buchanan wanted to become a clan in its own right, Lord Lyon would have to be consulted and the evidence would have to be laid down as to why it should have clan status over a family status. So there's still a lot of rules and regulations, say, over the heraldry and the historical components of tartan and clan history in Scotland, as opposed to the kilt, unfortunately, has no protection. So on the Royal Mile, where I am again now, after, oh God, 14 years being away in my own small shop, the tat and the cheap kilts made in China and India and Pakistan and wherever, there's no government or guidance to a tourist shopping in Scotland when it says, the real McCoy, a man's kilt for £50. Pounds. You know, we sell a kilt starting at £700 pounds of Jeffrey Taylor. Mine starting £900 because of my pockets, kilt pins, socks, things like that. So... To keep kilt-making alive, people need to buy a proper kilt because the more crappy imported kilts that are sold, the less real kilts and the real industry and the real um, craftsmanship of Scottish kilt-making will die out. So it's where I tried in the past to get a protected geographical indicator for the kilt, a PGI. Mm -hmm. So whiskey... Parmesan cheese, always champagne, but it had never been done for clothing. And I kept trying to work with um, European members of parliament. And it was put out to the rest of the kilt industry. And the rest of the kilt industry, I wanted it to be three things to be able to call a kilt a traditional Scottish kilt, hand sewn, pure wool, made in Scotland. Three really simple things. And then the rest of the industry started going on about, well, what about a machine made kilt? And I'm like, well, that's a machine made kilt. We're trying to protect the real art of hand sewing kilt-making. You know, the only kilts behind me that are machine-stitched are denim. So all my Harris is tweed kilts, and anything wool is hand-stitched still, even the modern kilts, which, to say, you know, that 22-ounce houndstooth tweed is a modern kilt, it's only modern because of the way it's made. It's a very old-style tweed. So I'm very much about evolution but in the radical sense of looking back to the past to bring it forward, because if you don't look back, going forward, you're going to make the same mistakes as such. But the present, what we present as Scotland, as our Highland dress, is really the Victorianisation, an aristocratic view of Highland dress. It's like the Prince Charlie jacket is only 100 years old. It was based on a jazz jacket, like a jazz coat, so Highland dress has always evolved. And what people think is traditional is actually even more technically contemporary because it's, it's not that long ago that the Highland dress we call traditional today was made up in the Victorian period. So when people question 21st century kilts on what I do, I'm like, I'm just part of this evolution. You know, this has been going on for thousands of years. I'm just one small cog in that evolution of bringing back unbifurcated clothing for men without the cultural appropriation, with it's tartan, that you know, if it's a denim kilt, the person wearing it, whether it be Danish, Japanese, a Japanese customer can easily say, back in ancient Japanese history, men wore robes and very loose garments, but that Japanese customer in the 21st century, here and now, can say, I feel an affinity towards the garment of the kilt and that
1: mm-hmm.
2: pleating and the comfort, but I don't feel an affinity to Scottish tartans. So what I did was I separated the fabric from the garment.
0: Right. Well, you have to know the rules to break the rules, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean,
2: I have my own <laughs> etiquette now. But for example, my front pocket system should two rules, don't wear it with a spore and don't wear it with the socks up. So, you know, it should be more of a mm-hmm socks down crunched look and if you're wearing the big front pockets you know these big ones here it's instead of a sparring so putting a sparring in between which unfortunately over the years there's pictures in my gallery of customers who get a bit excited and they're a bit like a kid in a candy shop and want to wear everything all at the same time Uh, like less is more sometimes you know
0: yeah well for any of our listeners who might not know what a sparring is or how socks are traditionally and maybe now worn with a kilt. Would you go into that a little bit?
2: Sure. So a sporran is a pouch. You know, if you were to think in the States of... Who's the guy with the feather hat and the tail coming out? Is the Oh,
0: Davy Crockett.
2: Davy Crockett. You know, he had pouches all over him. He'd have a tobacco pouch, a food pouch, a water bag. So sporran's is the Scottish term of that. But it's like a pouch. And that pouch can be used for anything. In the Victorianization. These pouches became centralised over a man's private parts to protect his modesty, supposedly, in case mm-hmm. he got aroused while wearing a kill. Um, so <laughs> the foreign got moved to the centre in the Victorianization and became very ornate. So there's dead animal fur, metal cantles across the top, different tassels hanging. You know, you can get nine tassels, six tassels, with almost three tassels bouncing around. I personally find them very irritating. Uh, it's like having quite a heavy purse handbag strapped around your middle. So the sparring became very ornate and fancy and expensive. You know, a good proper dress sparring is a couple of hundred pounds and conveyed from seal skin to bovine to muskrat. Different, you know, there's a lady up north that uses roadkill. So you get badger's heads, roe deer, pheasants, I mean, it's a work of art. A sporran is a work of art in its own field of craftsmanship. You know, a, a kilt maker doesn't make sporrans. A sporran maker doesn't make kilts. But it's the same of all the accessories in Highland Dress are all different, you know, the ski and do, the dagger that is worn down the sock. That's a whole other art form of knife making and the, the handles and the carving it. So the whole Highland Dress ensemble is all very individually, historically has its own story and path and um, this well, story being the operative word.
0: Right. That's really, really interesting. So there's very specific elements that are made by very specific artisans. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think the term artisans has become much more prevalent in Highland dress in the last 20 years, especially with lockdown, that these one-off items are becoming more what people want you know people don't want to mass produce ski and endure sporins. they want it to be made especially that you know whether it be roadkill or an antler that's a byproduct um, as opposed to using plastic resins or fake fur um, or just plain lever sporins. so the diversification of these artisans is important because it's all about the ethical sustainability of each part of Highland dress that keeps people excited that if you can't, say, afford the real thing, but okay, you might build yourself up to it, but you appreciate that there is an artisan level to Highland dress that goes back historically even pre-Victorian period, that every component existed before the aristocratic purging of the practicality of kilt wear and it becoming much more avant-garde fancy dress.
0: Well it's almost in fashion in in that era In that era,
2: so in that that era like, yeah and even through some periods of skull but not really it kind of really did die out because of this Victorianization I mean it's more in my lifetime and with people like my mum and dad creating the outfit package in the 70s they were the first company, Jeffrey Taylor. Um, my dad is Jeffrey the Taylor. So, I mean, people who know the industry, my dad goes back 50 years in the industry. He was the first person to do the rentals of kills. And um, you know, things like Mel Gibson doing Braveheart didn't do any harm, Rob Roy, Liam Neeson, even, even films like Train Spotting that put Scotland on the map and Scottish identity and made Americans and Canadians and Australians, and New Zealanders people around the world in the Scottish diaspora to look up and think, actually, being Scottish is pretty cool. Um, I can be proud to be Scottish and wearing a kilt could be quite cool. I could get a bit of attention, I can peacock. You know, for a guy, men do not have many options in the wardrobe and the kilt stands out as a very masculine but alternate piece of clothing unless, you know, you grew up in Scotland and you know kilts. Whether it be from Highland Dancing or Scout groups or even rock stars wearing them. Like, in, when I was, what well, we're now talking 19 years ago, it'll be 20th anniversary next year of the MTV Awards being in Edinburgh and me having the honor of dressing Vin Diesel. And he was awesome. <laughs> and still, nearly 20 years on, in Edinburgh, I can still get bought a drink because, hey, you're the guy who dressed Vin Diesel. <laughs> And Vin Diesel really did open up my marketplace a lot in the last 20 years. But yes, he has Scottish roots, but the way he rocked that kilt and even the photography online of him wearing it, he owned it. He felt comfortable. He felt masculine. He was very open-minded to wear it for the whole show because normally at the MTV Awards, the guests are changing outfits. He was meant to wear a traditional outfit at Edinburgh Castle and he was like, "No, no, no! I want to wear this leather kilt the whole bleep show." And uh, yeah, yeah, he swore I'm bleeping. <laughs> so yeah, people get very enthusiastic once they actually try it.
0: Yeah, well, I was looking at your website and I was looking through the list of celebrities that you have created custom kilts for, and I was like, "Is there anyone Howie hasn't created a kilt for?" It's pretty impressive.
2: And uh, the journey has been incredible. Like Mario Testino on the list did a beautiful photo shoot. Yeah. But he's up for questionable behavior. And I suppose that's the problem. You do something so long that historical starts to catch up in some ways. I mean, there's so many people I'd love to have dressed like Eminem over the years and Will Smith. Just loads of Brad Pitt, loads of Hollywood stars. But however many people I dress, I'll never be happy or content until I get a U.S. president or a royal in a kilt. You know, Barack Obama. If I'd got Barack Obama in a kilt, I probably could have, uh, maybe, well, I wouldn't have hung up my hat, but I mean, I've dressed Richard Branson and I've dressed Prince Albert of Monaco. There's another very well-known person who I've kilted, but I'm not actually allowed to talk about because of a MDA.
0: I love that so much. Now I'm going to go to bed thinking about that tonight. So you have been doing this for a very long time and you did mention your family. I'm hoping we can kind of like turn back to that just for a second, because your parents weren't the first generation of kilt makers and tailors within your family. Their parents and their parents' parents on one side or another were as well, is that correct? How far back does it go?
2: So it's all on my dad's side is the tailoring. We're not totally sure how far it goes back. but certainly his grandfather, was a cutter and tailor in a kilt maker's and worked on kilts. He was not a kilt maker, but worked in the industry and worked in Forsyth's on Prince Street, a big tailor in kilt making, very famous. And my grandmother must have got a job with him as an apprentice, very young, and learned kilt making before World War II. World War II hit and my grandmother was moved up north to a secret air base and was packing parachutes, and my grandfather was an engineer working on test planes. They were the only two Jewish people up north of Scotland in this Naval Air Force base and got together. And after World War II, they came back to Edinburgh, and my grandmother taught my grandfather how to make kilts. So the two of them were making kilts for mostly, I think, pipe bands, Some military stuff and some private customers as well. And then my dad at 15 went off to London to the tailoring and cutting academy and came back to Edinburgh, was making suits within my grandfather's company, which at this point was called, don't know if you can see that there, Nichols Bay and Son. Uh Okay, I I bought this jacket on eBay, but we'll come back to that. So my dad was working for his dad and my dad felt that he was not getting his fair share and could do better independently. So him and my mum started their own business called Jeffrey Taylor in brackets. Now this is very old-fashioned, and we are hoping to redo this. But see the tailor's in brackets.
0: Oh yeah, so, I like that.
2: Well, it's nice, but it's really confusing to the younger generation. Me and you get it, April, but that's his profession. But mm-hmm. we're Tweaking with it just now in a new um, brand reshuffling, uh, a, a brand rebirth. <laughs> so he started his own business with my mother in 1971. Then my grandparents, that their kilt business slowly closed down. Then ended up in hairdressing. It's quite strange. I never met my great great grandfather. My great grandfather. So like. My grandparents would talk about how back in the day when they were kilt makers as well. But then my mum and dad really took it to another level with, my dad was very entrepreneurial in the 70s, whereas my grandparents were from a pre-war generation and were very happy with what they had, whereas my dad was aspirational and wanted to expand and make it bigger and for everyone. So that's where doing an outfit package and the rentals came into play. My first realization of a business was in 1983, I was five years old in Atlanta, Georgia, hiding under a table in a tent where my sister was selling all the socks. My mom and dad were really busy and I was crying under the table and this lovely family, the McLarens, found me and got me out from under the table and took me to my mom and dad and said, look, he's crying under the table. We're a lovely family. Can we take him for a look around the festival? They were really, really busy. They were being absolutely hammered. They were the first ever Scottish company to come to America firsthand as kilt makers. So they were very out there on a limb. But everyone at this Scottish festival had heard about them coming. And there was queues to be measured by my mum and dad. So they were really busy. So they let me go off. And I fell in love with Scotland in Atlanta, Georgia, in Stone Mountain Park. Because it was like 50,000 people, bagpipe competitions, caber tossing, dog trials, dancing competitions. Whereas in Scotland, it was maybe a couple of thousand people and it was rainy and horrible. Whereas in Atlanta, Georgia, it was beautiful. And that trip, we were in Disney World. We tagged a family holiday and my sister, who had been working, pulled out a load of dollars and was going to buy herself something. And I said, where, where did you get all that money? And she goes, while you were crying under the table, I was working. So that taught me that if I actually just got a wee outfit and a box to stand on and worked, I would get paid. So in 1984 was my first paid gig working the the socks. I sold the socks and the garter flashes. The garter flashes hold up the socks and have a little bit of fabric hanging off. So my, my maximum sale was about $20, $25. And I was taught how to use the old running credit card machine. <laughs> so I have now been doing this for 38 years.
0: That's amazing. I love that story. Very entrepreneurial at age six or seven.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I kind of got the vibe that everyone was really buzzing and enjoying themselves. And I really was miserable crying under the table back year. So I guess at age six, I just wanted to join the party. Yeah.
0: Well, you've said in the press before that as a teenager, you didn't necessarily intend to carry on the family tradition. What changed your mind?
2: Depends how candid you want me to be.
0: However candid you would like to be. I mean, the God's
2: honest truth. I wanted to be a movie journalist, not a movie critic, Mm. but a movie journalist. And I realized you're obviously going to end up being a critic. And I couldn't, I didn't want to go down that line. And as it happens and fate, Sent my way on acid psychosis, too much LSD, um, in 1996. Pretty much a two month period changed my entire life and life plans. So at the time, I was planning a year out to Israel and then university in London to carry on my studies of media. And then this psychosis hit, and I was pretty serious, and my parents privately and quickly got me into a rehab clinic in the borders of Scotland, very well-renowned, world-renowned. And I was in and out within a week and 10 days. I say a week and 10 days, the first week I was very unwell. And then divine intervention, I snapped out of it, good therapy, 10 more days of therapy and sharing and working the steps. I was released (laughs) back into the big wide world and had a lot of life choices to make. The year out to Israel was postponed because I was seen as a bit of a high risk. So I decided to spend a year in the business. I very much felt like my parents had saved my life. And I'd always respected what we do and what a great business they had. I just didn't think I wanted to go into the kilt industry. But I decided to give a year and to see where I want to go with university and whether I wanted to do Israel trip still. And I said, as part of the deal of going into the business, I kind of saw it would be quite therapeutic. I wanted to spend at least one day a week in their workshop, which is the floor above me where I'm sitting, which is now about to be converted into apartments. The workshop's out of town. It's about to come back into town. But back in 1996, the workshop was upstairs on the Royal Mile. And I got put in with all the ladies, all the kilt makers I grew up with, who knew me since I was a little boy in school shorts. And I would used to come upstairs after school and sit and watch them sewing. So there was kind of a familiarity at 18 years old, having gone through what I'd gone through, of being up there in a workshop with people I'd known since my childhood who were willing to spend the time to show me how to make a kilt. Because I thought, Dad, let's do this year. But if I am going to come into the kilt industry, you're a master tailor by trade. You were taught kilt making by a member of your staff. In the 70s, I feel like I should definitely know how to make a kilt from start to finish. So that year, um, I got right in about it, sometimes more than a day a week, sometimes was on into the evenings and really enjoyed it, found it very therapeutic. And then realized because I didn't have a tartan, I really didn't know what kilt to make for myself. And although I was clean and sober, to an extent, I was drinking alcohol at this point, uh, but everything else. all all done and dusted. But I still like to go nightclubbing and cream nightclub and Ministry of Sound, these 90s rave house music albums all had people dressed in PVC, the plastic material, Mm -hmm. bright colours, funky colours, futuristic. I've got it sitting right here. I'll get it. Oh, I would love to see
0: it. I was
2: in London and I'd spoken to the kilt maker, mum and dad's head kilt maker, about buying some unusual fabric to make a kill. I found this snakeskin PVC. That, oh, it's great! And that is completely hand stitched PVC.
0: What our listeners can't see that I can see because it's on camera is that you have had it uh, framed, so it's in—it's almost in like a little shadow box mounting. Yeah, it's
2: really great. I hope to get it into the <laughs> National Museum of Scotland one day.
0: It's wonderful.
2: Certainly into the Scottish archives. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason it got um, framed, it was it, because it was the original prototype and it was high-waisted and it was still constructed and sewn completely as a traditional eight-yard hand-sewn military kill. The only difference, but that's not a traditional, what we talked about earlier in the PGI, the only difference was well, it's made in Scotland and it's hand-stitched, but it's not pure wool. So it cannot be called a traditional Scottish kill. But it's certainly the first part of its real evolution, that the actual thing that's being evolved is still exactly the same, but a different fabric. So it it all stems from that sitting, sewing that kilt in 1996, having gone through mentally what I'd gone through, made me realise that I wasn't the only one out there, Scottish or not, without a tartan who wanted an alternative in clothing and felt that because of my historical past, but forward-thinking mind from my parents' generation, that the natural evolution generationally would be to modify the core product that we sell. (laughs) Well, the the major factor is growing up as a child, I hated wearing a kilt. It was so heavy and high-waisted that it literally went right under my ribs. Mm -hmm. I would make any excuse, you know, even to the point of wearing tartan trousers to work in, as opposed to having to put a kilt on. Apart from when I was in America and traveling in London as a child, no, more so America as a child. I loved wearing a kilt in America. But see, home in Scotland, unless it was a really formal event, I didn't really want to go through the hassle of putting it on. But when I, at 21, when I started wearing a kilt every day, and the the hip is lower on my kilt's, I find now wearing trousers uncomfortable. So the irony as well of me not wanting to join the kilt industry, not wanting to wear kilts, to then being part of the evolution of the kilt going forward for everyone else, but also enjoying the garment in my real life every day. I couldn't go back to trousers. I would find life too boring.
0: You've actually um, called yourself a, r- a radical evolutionist, yeah. <laughs> in your in your trade, so w- what exactly is the philosophy of 21st century kilts?
2: It's very simple: is to try and make kilts in fabrics men would wear as trousers. So yes, at the start, some of the fabrics were very avant-garde, like um, Chinese silk dragon designs and the pvc now on a day-to-day level most men wear maybe wool trousers tweed trousers but mostly wear denims so i as 21st century kills my major focus is towards the denim kill and always finding new denims or new sources for denim making sure the denim kill is robust as possible that for example a black <laughs> denim kilt can be worn on the beach with flip-flops and a t-shirt, but could also be worn white shirt, black tie to the Oscars or also to a funeral. You know, one black kill can be so much more versatile than a than a tartan kill or a black pair of trousers, but it can be proper party party festival wear, but really serious um ceremonial funeral wear
0: hmm Well, I did want to touch on formality with you. How does formality factor into wearing a kilt for different occasions?
2: So the kilt supersedes any other, like it can supersede a dinner suit, for example. If I'm wearing a tartan kilt in America and it's black tie, but say you were like, I hate this, but say those white Jacobite shirts with a tie up. Some American functions might allow a scottish person wearing that because they perceive that as black tie because it's a kill and they've only ever seen a kill being formal i had this experience in new york recently at the racket club they allowed me to wear a polo neck and a tweed jacket as opposed to a shirt and tie because i was wearing a kill so i made the effort more than a jacket but because i was wearing a kill they allowed me no tie but they didn't see the Nikes I was wearing below the desk. I got away with them. <laughs> I got away with my high-top Nikes in the racket club. Don't tell anyone. So the kilt, we're very lucky in that sense. It's more a case that the kilt is always formal until you deformalize it. So as standard, the standard is that the kilt will be worn with a jacket and a shirt and tie. That's what most Scottish people see the kilt as. Internationally, the English, Welsh, Irish all see the kilts being a formal garment so i'm a disruptor in that that it's the radical side of it but i'm taking it back to pre about rebellion but it was everyday clothing and unquestionably just everyday clothing no one batted an eyelid no one was like oh what are you wearing that for you know oh you're going somewhere special you know i hate it. it's why i dress the way i do for your listeners I've got my star wars t-shirt on over a jumper I've got high-top Nikes on, chunky socks pushed down, and a grey denim kilt with an airline seatbelt for fun, but also <laughs> got to expect turbulence in a kilt. The key is, I definitely don't look like I'm going to a wedding. April, definitely not. You know, it would be dis- disrespectful to turn up to a wedding wearing a Star Wars T-shirt, unless, you know, a Star Wars thing. I mean, it's a fun Star Wars T-shirt. It's kind of a Beatles-Star Wars mashup. But that's kind of my philosophy of 21st century clothes. But very easily, right now, if I wanted to, okay, I could take this Star Wars t-shirt off and put this green tweed jacket over this green jumper and just wear my scarf. And all of a sudden I'm wearing a formal jacket. I would get into the racket club. You know? Right. I, I would get into any the Waldorf Astoria in London, any formal place, even though it's a grey denim kill. The cultural mentality of anyone with me approaching them is, oh, he's wearing a kilt, that's quite formal, I better be polite and nice to this person because he's made an effort and got dressed up to come here. They might not know, this is how I dress every day, but the mentality is that the person I'm coming towards perceives me because I'm in a kilt, I'm going somewhere nice and it's going to be somewhere formal. So I've got to wear... As many Star Wars or gimmicky t shirts as I can, and Nike high top boots to try and get that person to be counterintuitive to what that person's been indoctrinated with, whether it be from Sex in the City and the Kyle McLaughlin wedding scene, you know, and it's all Prince Charlie's and red tartans and white socks, you know, and that's the image from Sex in the City that a lot of American people will have of how people wear the kilt because that's the representation Hollywood puts forward of a kilt. Whereas me as a background person, as a guest at that wedding, say wearing a 21st century outfit, wouldn't have fitted with the Hollywood interpretation of what the kilt is. I'll use um, the Samuel L. Jackson film as an example, 51st State, Formula 51. It's with Meatloaf, Robert Carlisle, and Samuel L. Jackson wears a kilt throughout the entire movie. Have you heard of it?
0: I haven't seen it.
2: It's a great film and I recommend it to all your listeners. It's one of Samuel L. Jackson's finest films.
0: I love Samuel L. Jackson.
2: He was a little bit of a fight action scene where he annihilates four neo-Nazi skinhead punks with a golf club in a kilt in a hotel reception area in Liverpool. It's a brilliant film. It's really good fun. Um, Right, my point being, the costume designers and the producers the creative of that movie wanted Samuel L. Jackson to wear a brown tweed kilt. They loved it. It looked really cool on him, really stylish. We sent the kilt down to him. but at the last minute, the producers got involved and the writers of the film, and if you've seen the film, I don't want to spoil it, the kilt had to be tartan. And there's another company that weave the actual tartan that have an office in London that were able to do that kilt for that film. So I never got Samuel L. Jackson in a 21st Century Kill in that movie. It might have been a real moment for 21st Century Kills if Samuel L. Jackson had been in the film, you know, with my kilt pin, my styling, that whole thing. It's my styling in the film. I've nothing to do with the film, but you can see that they've definitely sort of looked at 21st Century Kills and the styling of the socks pushed down and the boots and the chunky jumper. That you know, we certainly helped with the the styling of it.
0: And I think that really kind of speaks to exactly what you just said, is like if you took off your Star Wars t-shirt and put on that blazer that you have hanging behind you, it's all about how you decide to style the kilt in terms of the message that you're sending.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's fighting down as well, hundreds of years of perception of what a kilt is, and also trying to come away. So again, the Star Wars t-shirt is very lighthearted and child-friendly. You know, I wouldn't rock about with like a DC Joker t-shirt on, or anything aggressive, or depressive, or violent, or even some band t-shirts, because then it also takes on like, is he wearing a kilt in a kind of rebellious rock way? Because I dress JD from Corn, you know, and JD wears a kilt a lot on stage and lots of different styles, but he always looks like a rock star on stage wearing a kilt. Now I can't walk about Edinburgh looking like JD from Court, You know, I still have <laughs> to look on the top half like a respectable taxpaying adult. You know, so I've got, you know, my hat here and my glasses. Hold on. So I'm putting on my wooly hat and my glasses. Now, when I'm walking to work and I'm wearing a kilt, I could get stopped all the time, but I put up this, you know, the glasses and the and the hat as a kind of a bubble that, I'm putting myself out there, wearing this every day, and I love it. I don't need to be stopped every five minutes to be asked about it. So, you know, I've kind of got put up this defensive look. but I could maybe come over as looking quite warrior or aggressive or a little bit scary. And I try not to. And that's why, you know, I like to try and have something like Star Wars or very passive-aggressive, you know, like a picture. My favorite T-shirt just now is the moon, and it's a Tyrannosaurus Rex outline on a bicycle. So it's like, a, it's like <laughs> E.T., but a Jurassic Park E.T. moon mashup. And it's a gorgeous T-shirt. And people see it, and I see them the eye line of them smiling at it. And that, that's why I like. I like the interaction with people without having to say a word. It's just a smile and an eye contact, like you're having a good day, you're having a good day. It's friendly, it's short and sweet, but it's just that human interaction that a kilt can give, but it needs to be friendly. You know, I can't be looking like some warrior or rock star or something out of Outlander.
0: I would bet money that you probably have some pretty amusing anecdotes about people's reactions to you wearing a kilt. Do you have any that stand out that you would like to share with our listeners?
2: Oh, there's so many, and it's so hard to recall sometimes. I mean, the most obvious, which has happened many a time, is I'll be walking along towards someone, and I can see they're making eye contact with my kilt as if it's a person but they've lost the look of where they're going. This is before iPhones even, where people are walking around like zombies. And I've had to stop a few people from walking into lampposts and stuff because I can see them, you know, the stair line sort of thing. I mean, I've had some really weird situations. I mean, one, it's not that funny. And what happened to me, if, if five guys did this to a girl, the guys would have been arrested. But, you know... In my 20s, I'm dancing away in Newcastle and I had Vaseline in between the legs and thighs because I was young and silly and I was, wasn't wearing underwear. And before I know it, four girls have got me pinned against the wall and there's a girl about 10 feet away, like a bull, sort of rubbing her foot and eye contact and comes straight at me and puts her hand right up under my kilt. Now, I get <laughs> a hold of my private bits and she goes into my behind bits, into the crevice, where it's quite sticky and Vaseline. And it's a disco. And she pulls her hand out and she looks at her hand and she's got Vaseline all over her. And her friends are looking at me like, oh, gross. And like, I got the blame. They're looking at me like I've done something wrong, but they molested me in the middle of a nightclub in Newcastle. So it's not funny, but it's certainly an anecdote where wearing a kilt can certainly get you in some tricky situations. Um,
0: <laughs> or sticky situations sticky situations. Ah. I should be
2: sponsored by Vaseline <laughs> for your listeners it's an old rugby trick to stop chafing when you're playing rugby so when you're wearing a kilt all day long and you're not wearing underwear any male listeners I would recommend a little spray a little bit of um, Vaseline certainly makes kilt wearing more comfortable um, if you are wearing it in the traditional commando military sense of no underwear. Now, I like to make it very clear at my age with two grown up children, a very happy married life. I wear underwear every day. The only time I don't wear underwear would be like we're off to a resort. We're at a wedding. I'm showering. I'm putting on the outfit. But I'm going to wear the whole day. I'm going to be dancing and sweaty. It's a good fun party. I might decide not to wear underwear. Because I know the kilt outfit's going to get so sweaty from me dancing, but it's all going to be dry cleaned anyway. And it is really, really comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it is. It's just really, really nice to let things hang free.
0: Right. Well, and also, I think that you um, tout some health benefits um, well, for that, right?
2: thank you, April, for bringing that into the equation. <laughs> yes, it has been Medically proven that wearing a kilt can reduce the risk of testicular cancer and impotency because of more airflow and keeping those outer regions at the right temperature that we're meant to be at. Now, this was interestingly also corroborated by Australian scientists who connected young men and the rise of testicular cancer and impotency in the early noughties from wearing tight skinny jeans. Because again, hot climate, tight, compressed bits that are meant to be kept at a lower temperature cause problems.
0: Yeah. This is fascinating, I'm sure, to some people who have never worn a kilt before and always had these questions. What advice would you have for for someone who is new to the kilt-wearing scene?
2: I'm going to steal a Swiss watch commercials tagline at the moment and I love it. It's a British advert and it just says at the end, do your research. Mm. Now, like anything with the internet, we have got no excuse. Like, you know, we talked about rabbit holes earlier before coming on to, to talk that I I love the internet for this, that you really can get an idea of a company, of a brand, of what we are about from just a bit of research. You know, in the old days, we'd go to the library, we'd go, we had the Britannica series in our houses, which were like big, binded books. I can't remember what it's called in America. I've seen it like referred to in Encycl-
0: Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia. Yes,
2: we had Encyclopedia Britannica. When you're researching, say, something like buying a kilt or buying a watch or buying a car, Uh, Something that you're gonna have for a longevity of time, something that people are gonna an aspirational product, something you don't actually need in life. Okay, like you don't need a fancy car. Nobody actually even needs a car. You know, there are other alternatives to it. And you know I don't have a car. There we go. Yeah, I barely drive. I usually I walk or cycle everywhere. The only time I use my car is if I'm going more than twenty miles, literally. You know, or I'm going out the city or I'm going away for a day and we've got lots of stuff with us. So, you know, it's more of a house on wheels sometimes. So point being, no one really needs a kilt, but no one needs um, Armani jeans or Versace shoes or Prada shoes or, you know, a Vivian Westwood dress. They're aspirational products that save with a Vivian Westwood dress, you probably will retain some value in it. I like to think someone buys a 21st century kilt and their size changes or they get bored of it or want to buy a new one, they can put it on eBay and still get a decent return from it considering it's secondhand clothing because it's been made well, it has brand association to an aspiration. But we all strive to make lives better for ourselves and the people around us and our society around us. And if buying a kilt for yourself makes you happy and outgoing and more um, productive in your life that clothing can actually have that mental effect on you. Absolutely. But let's not make that the enemy. The enemy should be mass production, should be sweatshops, child labor, um, discrimination. You know, it's not the fact that people Work hard and have money to spend isn't the demon. Capitalism isn't the demon. Cap, it's greedy capitalism at the top. You know what I do? Yes, I make a living from it. I'm not driving around a fancy car. I treat myself to a new pair of Nikes when I find the type I want. I don't have an exuberant lifestyle. Even having a kilt made for myself is a treat. But I'm very, very lucky, and I, you know, I live in a very beautiful country and i I don't need much but when i consider how much i have compared to a ukrainian Afghan refugee i i I feel extremely ashamed of how material my life is now i love my coffee and i don't drink anymore and i maybe spend the money that i didn't spend on alcohol on the nikes or i'm able to help a homeless guy out with his 20 quid because he needs 25 to get to a hostel and Unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that every night. But that's an example that we all have our own agendas in life, our own bubble. But, you know, as long as we're giving back a little bit, we should be allowed to treat ourselves to nice things in life to make ourselves feel good and our families feel good, whether you're buying a partner a kilt or, you know, your wife wants you to buy a kilt because she thinks you'll look really handsome in it and sexy and that's what your wife wants. Maybe give a kilt a try <laughs> if it's never been... In your radar, but your loved one, whether it be a wife or husband, telling a husband or try something new can be the same as a holiday. You know, so my kilts are a thousand pounds, and let's say someone's a very busy business person and they've got money to spend disposable income, but they can't get a holiday and they think, you know what? I'm gonna spend my holiday money on a new kill or the first ever kilt, and I want to be the best kill, so I'm gonna go to Howie at 21st century kills because I've done my research, I've looked at social media. This guy cares about what he's doing.
0: And they're also getting almost always a custom product, correct? Your kilts are custom. Yeah, I mean, everything
2: behind me is made for me. Or one mistake, and that's my son's kilt, a Mm 12-year-old. So yeah, I mean, they are all made So I don't carry a big stock. And, you know, it's not like, I mean, the shop, the company I refer to all the time is Utility Kilts to give Americans a kind of starter point but Utility Kills have been going the same length as me in 1996. And I have a beautiful store in Seattle where you can just walk in and get unbifurcated, bright men and men. And they're <laughs> only a couple of hundred dollars. So, you know, but a Utility kilt's are a really good starting point.
0: Well, here's a question. Can women wear kilts or should women wear kilts?
2: Yes, yes, and yes. So a kilt used to be, when I was growing up, very gender specific. But only men would want to wear a kilt because it's eight yards of fabric or six, seven meters of tweed. But it's a very heavy garment. Well, actually, it weighs less than two kilos. Like, And once it's on your body, it's, it's quite comfortable. So I have women customers who buy men's shaped fitting kilts and yardage. But I also do a woman's kilt, which is less yardage and a more feminine shape, where the aprons of the kilt are more narrow and the pleats come around to give a bit more, Hourglass effect and to be more, and I've seen in very commas, feminine. Okay. Now, I wouldn't stop a man wanting to buy a woman's kilt if they identified as a woman and they were in the journey of that transition. But if an average bloke walked in, you know, in a pair of jeans and saw a woman's kilt off the peg for 60 quid and thought, I'll just buy that it's going to be great i'd be like whoa 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 mate! that's not a good idea a it really does make you look like an idiot because you're going to wear it like a man's style you're obviously not identifying as a woman you're just looking for a cheap kill it the, the, it doesn't work we have a way whereas a woman right whether it be a pipe band member who is female or a highland dancer There are many, or a tour guide in Scotland, or the Queen herself wore kilts a lot. Any female can wear a pleated garment, whether it's called kilt or kilted skirt. It's more to do with the masculine to female that it becomes an issue. Because women can walk into a charity shop and buy an old dinner suit and wear it. So I think women have a lot more of an advantage over men that a they're much more aware of their own style and their own look and their own bodies of what looks good and what fits them women can pretty much wear whatever they want okay mm-hmm. it's really men were put under this microscope of masculinity and gender assignment that has to be masculine
0: or messaged by your clothing we talk about this on dressed a lot
2: i feel like when i get up and i have a shower and i put my kilt on and i'm Feeling good about myself, but, but that's me tweaking my own computer to reboot the day and get out and have a good day.
0: It's something specific. It's something unusual to other people, and it makes you happy. That is obvious.
2: Yeah, I, I like, I mean, I've, my favorite quote is Vivian Westwood. People who wear unusual clothing have a more interesting life. Now, not a fun life, not a sad but just interesting Now, if we can keep every day of our lives interesting, learn something new, pick up new habits, meet someone new, smile at someone different, you know, these positive things that might have that knock-on effect of passing goodwill on to each other. If I do that for a kill, I'm happy. And if I can do that for other people with a kill, I'm ecstatic.
0: Well, if we have some listeners out there who would like for you to do that for them, where can they find out more about you and also 21st Century Kilts?
2: Um, Cool. Easiest is my website. It's the 21stcenturykilts.com and that connects to my social media. Uh, I'm experimenting for the last wee while with a YouTube channel where it's definitely more tutorial, very low production values. (laughs) It's kind of like me and a iPhone on a tripod. And I just go for it and talk away about what I'm feeling about different subject matters of the kilt. I'll be adding to it because I feel like I do have a kind of responsibility, whether the person's buying a kilt from me or not, that I have kind of thrown the cat amongst the pigeons in 1996 by, as a Scottish company, actually declaring the kilt something that can evolve and it doesn't have to be stuck where it was, still gets me some criticism and some negativity but it's from very very narrow-minded antiquated people that only makes me strive to carry on to change people's perceptions and mindsets but things do move on but it can still be made really well and really high quality and a celebration of our scottish culture and craftsmanship so i I feel like I've taken quite a bit of a brunt over the years of um, criticism that, oh, it's not a real kilt or um, it's a travesty or um, celebrities shouldn't be wearing kilts for the sake of it. You know, Scotland doesn't own the kilt. The word kilt is Danish-Norwegian, as I said. It just means to tuck her pleat. Vikings wore wraps of fabrics with no underwear and wraps of material around the leg. Romans wore togas. Greeks wore wraps of fabrics which are pleated and still relevant in their modern military clothing so scotland we do it extremely well the kilt is predominantly known to be a scottish garment but we certainly don't own it on an anthropological human evolution level it will just keep on evolving people will want naturally alternatives in life and to be as different and stand out from our fellow human being, because we've all read, or hopefully a lot of your listeners have read 1984, George Orwell. You know, that's the alternative. That is the alternative.
0: Howie, this was amazing. This was such a wonderful chat. (laughs) I learned so much, um, not only from our chat today, but in my preparation to talk to you. So we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And we loved learning more about your modernization and constant evolution of the kilt. Thank you.
1: Howie, thank you so much for your time and obvious passion. April, I've really enjoyed these last few episodes on Scottish style, and that's really a subject we haven't really covered that much on dress and that I didn't know too much about previously. I
0: didn't either. So I've learned a ton. And um, just like we always say on the show, a lot of times we are learning right alongside the audience. And um, that is really one of the true privileges of making this show. We are so in debt to all of our wonderful guests from over the years who join us to share their knowledge. And as you have noted, Cass, their passions.
1: Yes, 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 truly a pleasure. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider where the pleats reside in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, please do so at at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. And if you'd like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. Just like we appreciate our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly
0: Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible twice a week. More Dressed coming your way on Tuesday. Dress: the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.